Hello and welcome to the latest Racing News 365.com podcast episode. We may have had a mini break after Baku and Miami this weekend, but the Formula One circus does not stop. To help me preview Imola and everything else that is going on in the world of motorsport, I have with me editorial director Dieter Renkin and agent correspondent Michael Butworth. Dieter, hello to you. I can see you've just landed in Bergamo in Italy. Well, actually landed, no, uh, Belve, I've arrived in Bergamo. I drove down from Belgium. Um, it's it's a car trip this time round because there are four four races, four, three Grand Prix and the Le Mans 24 hour on the bounce. So rather than fly backwards and forwards between each one of them, I've decided to do a long extended road trip, which takes me from Belgium to Italy. Um, I'll be going to Brembo, the, the brake manufacturers tomorrow to learn more about their Formula One braking, etc. Then from there, it's, it's Imola. After Imola, it's across to to Genoa, I go to Racing Force Group, who make um, OMP uh, overalls, bell helmets, etc. Then it's the Monaco Grand Prix. Then it's off to Spain, and then from there it's off to Le Mans. Which, of course, although the race is Saturday Sunday, it actually starts on Tuesday with um, with testing, and then you've got the the uh, the various practice sessions. So it really is a very very hectic four days. Right off returning from Miami four days ago. So believe me, my sort of my systems are sort of saying, is it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? And I know that my dog will bite me when I get home and say, who, who on earth is this guy? I haven't seen him. <laughs> Apologies, Dita. I thought you were flying. But uh, Dita, welcome to the podcast. And Michael, I know you've got a big flight in the next few days. Yeah, uh, I'm not doing the, the, the level of jet setting that Dieter has been, but uh, I am flying to the UK uh, on Tuesday for some uh, non-racing news related business. So uh, it'll be nice to watch a few races uh, at, uh, at a normal time of day for once. <laughs> We're going to wel- welcome you uh, to the UK, Michael. But let's get this party started. So, Michael, I want to stay on you for me and just start on Daniel Ricciardo. There's rumours of him might be taking Nick DeVries's seat next year. Yeah, well, so the, the, this um, this whole this whole rumour started because he had a seat fitting at Alpha Tauri. Obviously, this year we know Daniel Ricciardo is not driving. He serves as the reserve driver for Red Bull. Uh, owing to the in-season sort of restrictions on testing, he's not had much of a chance to do very much at the moment. Uh, but there was speculation that he might replace Nick De Vries, who has had a, a difficult start to 2023 so far. Uh, he's been overshadowed by Yuki Tsunoda. There's been uh, a few unforced errors. Helmut Marco uh, has uh, he publicly said that Nick DeVries is on a yellow card after the first five races of uh, 2023, where he's generally flattered to deceive. Of course, Red Bull and the Red Bull organization uh, famously ruthless with mid-season driver changes, either um, drivers being demoted from Red Bull to Alpha Tauri or drivers just being dropped from Alpha Tauri or as it was known, Toro Rosso altogether. So the likes of Danny Kvyat, Pierre Gasly, if you go a bit back a bit further, Sebastian Bourdais, Scott Speed have all been dropped mid-season from one of those squads. Um, and, and, and of course the Alpha Tauri Toro Rosso over the years, it served as a sort of finishing school, um, for Red Bull's young drivers. Um, you, you know, Kvyat and Gasly, when they were dropped from the senior Red Bull side back to Alpha Tauri, they were still in their mid twenties, still relatively young in F1 terms. Daniel Ricciardo, he's 33 years old. And I don't think he would really fit the sort of profile, uh, that, uh, that Alpha Tauri would, uh, would be looking for, even if he is in the Red Bull family. And in fact, Helmut Marco confirmed later that Ricciardo was not actually 
actually in the running for a potential seat at Alpha Tauri. And if they do decide to uh, to get rid of of Nick De Vries, it would actually be uh, Ayumu Iwasa or Liam Lawson, the the Red Bull juniors who are competing in. Well, Iwasa is competing in F2. He's currently third in the standings with two wins. Liam Lawson is uh, competing in Super Formula in Japan. He's third in the standings there as well, and actually won on his debut in that series. Uh, so the seat fitting that uh, that Ricardo had at Alpha Tauri, I think, was much more just due to the fact that he serves as a Red Bull reserve driver and therefore he's also the reserve driver for Alpha Tauri when he's on site as well there so I think it was more to do with just getting him ready if he needed to step in if De Vries or Tsunoda were indisposed for whatever reason rather than replacing them on a more long-term basis I think it would be more likely that Ricardo would replace Perez at Red Bull but I mean Perez has done very well so far this year uh, there's been no suggestion from anyone at Red Bull that they're unhappy with him so so I, I don't think uh, I don't think Ricardo's in line for a, a return just yet to Formula One. Yes, I do hope he uh, he gets a, a seat. Ricardo's one of my favourite drivers. But Dieter, there's some big news coming out of Pirelli. Well, uh, big news, yeah. I mean, all it is really is that they are uh, they've applied to the FIA. They've asked for for approval to to uh, change the specification of tyres. I think the big news angle here is the fact that the performance of the current cars is way in excess of what was projected last year. So the process is that every year uh, the teams project to Pirelli what they believe will happen in terms of performance increase, uh, performance steps, etc. Bearing in mind that the FIA is constantly cutting back performance. So um, these guys, of course, try and claw it back. So what they've sort of done is said, teams, what do you think your performance, your downforce, your energy levels, your G-forces, etc., will be? And uh, once they've got that, they sort of average it out, tab- uh, work it all out, calculate it, and turn around and say, right, our tyres can handle it or can't handle it. The reason for that being that obviously one doesn't want to over-engineer a tyre, and Formula 1, one doesn't over-engineer, one engineer nearest to the optimum. So they have now discovered, particularly after Miami, where pole position was well over two seconds a lap quicker, that the energy levels are way beyond what they thought. Is it a safety issue? No. Is it a cautionary matter? Yes. However, um, because Formula One has this very convoluted um, a governance process and voting process and any regulatory change has got to go through various steps, they have said, look, it could become a safety issue if the performance continues. Therefore, we will apply under the safety uh, uh, regulation, which doesn't need to go through all these steps. With safety, there are no arguments. It goes through. So uh, Pirelli have submitted the the, uh, request, and they will be testing the tyres ahead of Silverstone, and then they'll take a decision. But I I think we can take it as done, 99% done, because they're hardly going to request it and then find out the tyres aren't suitable. They are, incidentally, the tyre specification they have developed for next year so they should be very very much in line yeah looking forward to to hopefully getting those tires more safe as possible uh michael there should be some big mercedes upgrades for imola this weekend well, there are going to be some upgrades. I'm not sure how big they are. And if you look at, if you listen to uh, some of the words coming out of Mercedes, they seem very keen to manage expectations. Uh, we're expecting to see up, updates to the suspension and to the bodywork. But uh, Toto Wolff has said that you know there's there's not going to be a silver bullet. Uh, we're not suddenly going to find half a second. George Russell was saying that uh, these updates are not going to transform the car's performance. The W14 has proved to be very unpredictable so far this 
year. And we, we see George Russell and Lewis Hamilton often running completely different setups in practice just to find something that might work. I think these updates are really aimed at making, uh, giving the W14 a more stable platform uh, for then further updates later on in the year. I mean, Mercedes were, were, were slower than Fernando Alonso, slower than Aston Martin in Miami. So they need to do a bit more if they want to be consistently the second fastest team, uh, which seems to be the limit of what you can achieve this year with Red Bull being so dominant. And of course, they've only got the one podium finish so far, which is Hamilton's second place in Australia. So uh, yeah, these updates, um, probably not going to be the, 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 the updates that are going to vault them up into uh, the, the upper reaches of the grid, but certainly they're going to be hoping that it provides a more stable platform for the future. Um, fun, fundamentally, I can fully understand, um, uh, Belve, that Mercedes are managing expectations. Last year in, in Brazil, they had what I think they can now accept was a bit of a fluky win. Uh, basically, Max Verstappen and the rest underperformed. George Russell scored his first win. I was delighted for George. So certainly t- not taking anything away from him. But it certainly wasn't a win on the merit of the car. I think it was circumstantial. And I think this though basically flattered to deceive and Mercedes thought hey man we've got a a winning car here now at last and they sort of went into the season with a sort of feeling and spirit of optimism and I think that what they're now trying to do is just dampen that and rather than say we can win or the car will be up there I think what they're doing is saying we hope it can let's see and if it does of course then they'd be very very delighted as opposed to being very disappointed if it's not in the top three. Michael mentioned Red Bull earlier, Dieter, and we here at Racing News 365 published something on the Red Bull powertrain and also Ford. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be invited across to, to Red Bull powertrains. Um, and here at this point, I will give it its proper full official name. It's Red Bull Ford powertrains, uh, because Ford is effectively uh, a partner in the entire venture, as opposed to just a badging partner. They will be involved techni- technically, etc. But I was fortunate enough to be invited to what used to be Hangar 8 um, at, on the Red Bull campus, which is now RBPT Ford. But fundamentally, the um, uh, the situation is such that they are so well advanced. I was I was gobsmacked, frankly. Um, you know, I was taking on this exclusive tour around the facility, and you know, I thought, well, we we may see the odd engine here or there, but I mean, they have a fully fully kitted out operation. And let's not forget, it's just a little over two years since they made the original announcement. During that that period, they've gone from an empty hall to having dynamometers, all sorts of machines, equipment designs. They had their first engine running last year in August. It wasn't a single-cylinder engine. It was actually a V6 that was running. They thereafter did the the single cylinders for conceptual work and upgrades and updates and and whatever else. But I was absolutely astounded at the the level of of, um, readiness, preparedness that they've got to, um, bearing in mind that the regulation change, engine regulation changes in 26. So, you know, here we talk mid-23, and I reckon they're ready, uh, ready to go. I mean, of course, they still develop their engines but basically everything is in place for that so they've got about two and a half years to to really develop the engine and get get the logistics and whatever sorted i did an interview with christian horner he indicated that they would be uh, looking initially at the two teams red bull racing and um alpha tauri uh, as as recipients of the engines however if the fia did decide which it is entitled to do to um, demand that they supply another team that would be prepared to do so, but obviously would be uh, prefer not to. 
I also spoke subsequent to that uh, to Mark Rushbrook, who's the Ford Performance Director, very much involved at, at the sort of Christian Horner level from a Ford perspective. And again, he was absolutely adamant that A, this is a sort of joint venture and B, that Ford will be bringing technology to bear, particularly on the on the, the hybrid side. So Red Bull powertrains as it was will be looking at the hardware and Ford will be looking at the software and hence the name Red Bull uh, Ford powertrains. With the Ford partnership there, Dieter, do you think Red Bull can pull further away from the field in the next coming years? It's such a massive regulatory change, Belve. The engines are basically going from about 7, 750 horsepower on the internal combustion engine side and about 160 horsepower on the on the hybrid side to a 50-50 mix. So you're talking probably about 450 horsepower uh, IC and 450 on the hybrid. So three times the amount of hybrid power. In addition to that, to accommodate this, accommodate bigger batteries, accommodate the additional torque, the chassis regulations will have to change. Who knows? But based on, on um, present proof, I would imagine that Red Bull's going to be right up there. We had a massive regulatory change for this formula. And guess what? They walk the first season and they're busy walking the second. Another driver who I think might be able to get to the top of the field is Alonso, uh, Michael. Do you think he could win a race this year in his Aston Martin? Well, it's interesting we're talking about this now, Belt, because very recently it was exactly 10 years since his last win uh, for Ferrari at the 2013 Spanish Grand Prix. And uh, if uh, if Mike Crack, the Aston Martin team principal, is to be believed, on- Alonso might have a very, very good chance in the upcoming weeks at the Monaco Grand Prix. Now, the, the AMR 23, this year's Aston Martin, is a huge step forward from last year, much, much better. But it is still quite a draggy car, so they're, they're not great on, well, they're, they're less potent on tracks with long straights and we've seen a lot of them in recent races obviously that doesn't apply at Monaco so much where it's it's very very tight very twisty very technical much more about driver ability Alonso has won there twice before in uh, 07 and 06 and of course it's so important to to have a good qualifying at Monaco because it's so hard to pass in the race so you know if he gets it all together in uh, in qualifying and sticks it on pole if maybe Verstappen and Perez have a bit of a difficult session maybe maybe it could happen I mean, I, I'm sort of thinking that you know, for anyone other than Red Bull to win a race this year, it's going to need some unusual circumstances. It reminds me of you know, 2014 and 2016 when Mercedes were dominating to the extent that the only other races that were won by non-Mercedes cars were when the Mercedes either ran into mechanical difficulties or when they ran into each other. And I think we might be seeing the, sa- the same sort of thing this year. But you know, at a slower track like Monaco or maybe like Hungary later on in the year, if Alonso gets everything hooked up and he's been very hooked up up so far this year maybe we might see that who knows uh, another rumor that's coming out of formula one world is rumors of Matteo bonotta replacing otma safnauer at alpine as team principal yeah well the the, the rumors were that um, that bonotto had actually turned down the chance to replace otmar safnauer as team principal of alpine uh, we spoke last week about the fact that lauren rossi the ceo was very unhappy publicly criticizing the team calling them amateurish. Uh, Binotto has left Ferrari at the end of last year. We talked about that on the podcast as well a few months ago. Uh, obviously, a lot of upheaval and a lot of politics.
politics behind the scenes at Ferrari. And, and I wonder if there might be the same at Alpine as well, because Otmar Schaffnauer, he only joined in February 2022. Cyril Abitable had left the role in 2020. Martin Bukowski, David Brevio had sort of shared the duties in 21. Bukowski and Alain Prost both left in 2022. And yeah, I'm wondering if, if Benotto's looking for something that's a little bit more stable than he, he has seen at Ferrari. I'm wondering if he's not really going to find that at Alpine. Well, yeah, I think, first of all, before we consider whether or not he's going there, let's just have a look at the contractual situation. He is on gardening leave. I believe it's it's one year's worth of gardening leave. Yes, of course, the value of a contract is the amount of money that it costs people to get out of a contract. But fundamentally, he's got himself a new wine farm up in the, the Trento area. He, um, I believe, is concentrating on that. And one also has to question whether one could actually ever go back anywhere in Formula One once once you've headed up Ferrari, once you've actually had drivers winning, once you've had drivers contesting championships, etc. And I frankly, uh, I, I can't see it. I could be wrong, but I, I do believe that it would be a step back from a career perspective. Matteo's got to move on. He's got to move on from Formula One. And, you know, I, I heard store, a rumors some time back that he'd been talking to Audi. When I followed those up, it wasn't true. There were rumors that he was talking to Alpha Tauri. I followed those up. They weren't true. Um, you know, it's it seems as though whenever there's some talk of a team boss leaving, oh, well, Bonotto's going to move there. And I, I think that's overreaction. He's got a contract. He's on gardening leave. He's got a wine farm. I just can't see it. Certainly not at this stage. You know, if something came up at Mercedes or at Red Bull, different matter. Where do you think Matteo Bonotto could end up then? Well, I mean, he's he's a very, very, very talented, highly experienced manager. He's you know he was responsible for Ferrari's engine programs and all sorts of things. I mean, the wider automotive group, uh, you know, could be within the 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 Stellantis group, which is Fiat, um, Alfa, Maserati, Peugeot, Citroen, you name it. A lot of people have moved from the sort of environment and moved into the broader production production engine. Um, environment. Uh, they've also uh, you know, got themselves in, involved in other activities outside. I mean, he is a well-known figure and he is a proven manager. And, you know, accordingly, it's Formula One is not the only game in town for a man of his caliber. Yeah, we're excited to see where he might end up uh, in the next coming months and years. Uh, Dieter, you spoke to McLaren last week. What was the news coming out of Woking? Well, what was very interesting was that, you know, there, there are all these, um, these stories about, well, they're not concentrating on Formula One because they're doing Extreme E and Formula E and they're doing the IndyCar and they've got um, the eSports program and therefore they are not really uh, performing. And I spoke to Zach Brown about this and we'll be publishing you know, his, his comments, in-depth comments about all this. But fundamentally, Zach is absolutely adamant that the various activities they do as McLaren Racing are actually synergetic. So you have sponsors in Formula E who've come across or are shared with Formula One or vice versa, um, the, the um, British American tobacco stuff where they were able to split the products across the two uh, series of two uh, countries, so to speak, so Formula One territory and, and um, IndyCar territory. So yeah, from that perspective, Zach is absolutely adamant that they do actually complement each other across the board and that the downturn in performance is really down to the fact that they do have some antiquated uh, facilities at the moment for various reasons, which we outline in the article, which is, which is going to be published shortly. 
but that they are about to turn the corner, that effectively there's light at the end of the wind tunnel for want of a cornier comment, that they do have a new wind tunnel coming on stream, they do have a new CFD, they are busy with simulator upgrades, etc. So to all those Papaya fans out there, matter of time. Matter of time, yeah. We, we did speak about McLaren in last week's podcast episode, so if you haven't listened to that, please go and do that. And then last thing, Dieter, before we end the podcast, we do have a big race in Imola this weekend. What can we expect? Well, frankly, expect the unexpected. You know, Imola is a very tight circuit. I believe that the weather is going to be a bit iffy. Um, it is a difficult, challenging circuit. We've always seen some element of, of crash, and I'm, I'm obviously not referring here to the sort of fatalities that we had. I'm talking recent races, the uh, 20 and 21 races we had, 22. Uh, those sort of races, are they, they were always action-packed, and there was a bit of chaos and you know, a, a bit of um, unpredictability there. And I think we can see more of the same this week, which of course is very, very good for Formula One at the moment because in Miami, everybody would say, oh, just another Red Bull, you know, walk over. Um, I do believe that somebody like Fernando Alonso, we spoke about him earlier on, should have a good chance. Um, it's that sort of circuit. It's it's almost a street circuit, but a proper racetrack. Um, and you know, it's got tight corners, it's got flowing corners, it's got all sorts of things, and it's narrow, and in part very bumpy. I think that it will, that it is going to be a very unpredictable race yeah it should be a good uh, a good track for Alonso uh, especially if it rains and we're expecting to see rain on Saturday and Sunday at Imola um, we've had the, the last two Emilia Romagna Grand Prix Max Verstappen has won both of them and so obviously he's going for the hat trick this year and in fact the last two races uh, we saw we saw some changeable weather as well um, so yeah very very unpredictable as Dieter said I remember when they used to race at Imola in the 80s and 90s and everybody used to run out of fuel because there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of slow corners then preceded by by uphill and in the days of fuel restrictions everyone used to run out of fuel I'm not sure we'll see some uh, uh, th- th- I'm not sure we'll see that this weekend but uh, as Dieter said certainly hoping for some thrills and spills in northern Italy this weekend one of the reasons going back to that historic factor of people running out of fuel was, was fundamentally because of the uphills. They were trying to reduce the amount of fuel that have to lug up the hills and then down the other end, the heavy braking areas. So, um, but of course, that, that no longer applies here. But the cars, of course, now are very, very heavy and they will be a handful around that circuit. Michael Dieter and I'll be back in seven days to discuss everything that went on in Imola. And of course, we'll preview Monaco. We'll see you then. 